0: This is the History of the World podcast, with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 5, Iranian Religions of Antiquity. four episodes, we looked at the pre-Islamic empires of Persia, starting with the Achaemenids and following the story through the Macedonians, the Seleucids, the Parthians and the Sasanians. If all of these versions of Persia were pre-Islamic, then what was the state religion of these empires? Did they just continue the tradition of polytheistic deity worship or was there something else? Well, when you ask the question of pre-Islamic Persian religion to those who have knowledge of this period, the most common answer that you will receive is Zoroastrianism. Zoroastrianism is one of the top 20 religions of today's world. And when I say top 20, I'm talking about the estimated amount of followers. Zoroastrianism is a monotheistic faith. So this is an interesting discussion point due to the fact that we have little in the way of monotheism before the emergence of Zoroastrianism. One of the first and only instances of monotheism before the first millennium BCE was the instance of Atenism in Egypt, which was something that we discuss way back in episodes 15 and 18 of volume 2. This particular version of monotheism involved a pharaoh with a very outlandish attitude towards the traditional religion of the Egyptian kingdom. His name was Amenhotep IV, better known to us as Akhenaten, and he encouraged the people of his country to worship just one of the pantheon of Egyptian deities. But this did not last because the population did not want to let go of their traditional polytheistic beliefs. The story of Zoroastrianism begins with an individual called Zarathustra Spitama, also known as Zoroaster. It is difficult to pin a specific time to Zarathustra's lifetime. Some will date it as far back as 1500 BCE, while others suggest He was alive as recently as the 7th century BCE. Zarathustra's young life was spent being prepared for induction into the Iranian priesthood. Iranian religion during this period is somewhat guessed based on a number of elements, whether it be the recovered scriptures of the ancient Iranians or indeed the scriptures of other societies who had knowledge of the ancient Iranians. It is also based on who we believe the ancient Iranians were and for that we can dip back into episode 28 of volume 2 about the Indo-European movement of peoples. As we discussed previously, we believe that there may have been a movement of people maybe during the late 2nd millennium BCE from the Eurasian steppe southwards into the lands of the modern day of Kazakhstan. These are the branch of Indo Europeans who are referred to as the Indo Iranians, or synonymously the Aryans. This Aryan migration would in turn split into two separate migrations. Firstly, we would see a migration move southeast into the abandoned lands of the Indus Valley, once inhabited by the Harappans, who we spoke of in episode 26 of volume 2. Secondly, we could see a movement south-west into the lands of the modern country of Iran. So some historians have looked to link the known religious evolution of the Indian branch to the religious evolution of the Iranian branch. The Indian branch, generally speaking, would be those peoples who would construct the Vedas, which are the sacred ancient scriptures of the Hindu religion. These people would worship multiple deities who would be related to the natural elements of the world such as fire, water, wind and sun, for example. Some experts suggest that the ancient Iranians also worshiped multiple deities but that some of their particular deities would represent abstract elements such as truth, virtue and justice. In principle, we recognise ancient Iranian religion to be a polytheistic one. Now back to the story of Zarathustra Spitama, who by now was a young man in a polytheistic society, who had undergone an intense programme of education. A significant event happened to Zarathustra, and he would record this event, so we can now recount what happened according to his record Zarathustra would be approached by God in a vision and this was a God that Zarathustra was unfamiliar with this God would reveal itself to Zarathustra as the first and the last sole God of the universe the God had no name but Zarathustra would refer to the god as Ahura Mazda. Zarathustra would then set about writing the sacred scriptures known as the Gathas that would claim that there was only one god and that the polytheistic deities of the ancient Iranians did not exist and that there was only one god, Ahura Mazda, the deity that appeared to Zarathustra in his vision. The religion is known to us today as Zoroastrianism, which is based on the Greek name for Zarathustra, which is Zoroaster. Zoroastrianism would become the dominant religion of Greater Iran, which we can use as a rough reference to the vast expanses of land that were controlled by the great Persian empires, from the Achaemenids through to the Sassanids, and the ultimate displacement of Zoroastrianism by Islam. A few centuries after the Arab conquest of Persia, a Persian poet called Ferdowsi wrote an epic poem about the history of Persia called Shahnameh or the Book of Kings. This epic poem would reference the Zoroastrianism period of Persia and as such is regarded as an important script. It mentions a king called Jamshid of the mythical Pishtadian dynasty of Persia. Jamshid is believed to be the same king as the one called Yima in the Avesta. Now, the Avesta is the collection of Zoroastrian religious texts that also contain the Garthas, which, as we have mentioned previously, are believed to have been written by Zoroaster himself. According to the Avesta, Yima was commanded to build an underground sanctuary which would be a place of refuge for the chosen few alongside seeds of plants and pairs of animals who would be spared while Ahura Master destroyed the sinful world using snow and ice. So here we stumble across something which resembles the flood myth which was mentioned in ancient Sumerian mythological scriptures and of course within the Bible when we're talking about the story of Noah. So Zarathustra now felt a responsibility to tell the truth about his experience and to try to educate the Iranian people about the fact that there was only one God. As mentioned before, the only time that we are aware of that an individual tried to preach a monotheistic faith was when Akhenaten tried to change the state religion of Egypt. Although Akhenaten tried his best, he was ultimately unsuccessful in his quest to convert Egypt to Atenism, as Egypt reverted back to their polytheistic traditions. Zarathustra was not a pharaoh like Akhenaten, being just a member of his society's priesthood. Therefore, Zarathustra would become the earliest known. So although Atenism failed after the lifetime of Pharaoh Akhenaten, would Zoroastrianism succeed after the lifetime of the Prophet Zarathustra? The answer to this question is no. Iranian people were not interested in letting go of their monotheistic belief system and Zoroastrianism failed in the same way that Atenism failed. <laughs> Cyrus the Great We are quite aware that ancient Mesopotamians practiced polytheism with their multiple deities and their titular deities who would have represented the supreme deity of that city that they lived in, in a very general sense. The Elamites lived much closer to the lands that would become the place of origin of the first Persian Empire. The Elamites would have also had a polytheistic belief system with supreme deities also although it is thought that there could be multiple supreme deities comparatively little is known of ancient Elamite religion generally though as we have already discovered the Achaemenid Persians came to power during the 6th century BCE under the rule of Cyrus the Great one thing that we know about Cyrus the Great is that he was a follower of Zoroastrianism. So this now suggests that Zoroastrianism did not die out completely after the death of Zarathustra. Working out how Zoroastrianism survived and evolved between the lifetimes of Zarathustra and Cyrus the Great is a very difficult affair. The Achaemenid Persians emerged from within the Median Empire, which was in part responsible for the downfall of the Assyrian Empire. The great Assyrian king, Tiglath-Pileser III, was succeeded by his son, Sargon II, towards the end of the 8th century BCE. Sargon II received tribute from Median princes during his reign as the king of the Assyrian Empire. The princes shared the same name, which was Mashtaku. This name is derived from the name of the Zoroastrian god, Ahura Mazda. So this demonstrates a definite acknowledgement of the Zoroastrian god as a recognised deity of Median lands, the pre-Achaemenid Iranian lands. Whether the Medes were practising Zoroastrianism as we would come to know it is open for debate with little in the way of firm evidence. One of the most pivotal years in religious history is 539 BCE. It was in this year that we saw the end of the Neo-Babylonian Empire at the hands of the Achaemenid king, Cyrus the Great. The Neo-Babylonian Empire was responsible for the Exile of Jews from Jerusalem to Babylon in 597 BCE. Nebuchadnezzar II was a Babylonian king of Chaldean origin and after conquering Judea he exiled maybe 10,000 people which was not unusual practice for the empires of the Middle East looking back to this period of history. More trauma was felt by Jerusalem when those remaining Jews rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonians again, and Nebuchadnezzar laid siege on Jerusalem again in 587 BCE. They destroyed Solomon's temple in the process, a sacred Jewish temple. More Jews were deported, no doubt questioning why their supreme deity Yahweh had not protected them and their home city. As mentioned previously, five thirty nine b c e would be the culmination of this historical episode which is preserved in the Bible. Cyrus the Great and his Achaemenid Empire would destroy and take control of the neo babylonian empire. He would release the exiled Jews from Babylon, which may have numbered around forty thousand. It appears that even within a fifty year period, irreparable damage An irreversible change had taken place. Not all Jews wanted to return to Jerusalem, having been born and raised in Babylon. They would stay, and they are known to us today as the Iraqi Jews, and they remained in Iraq up until as recently as the middle of the 20th century. Those Jews who returned to Jerusalem found that an opposing religious group called the Samaritans had gained more power in the region, resulting in a struggle between the two religions. Nonetheless, the Bible celebrates Cyrus the Great to the point of declaring that God anointed him as the man to save the Jews. Chapter 45 of the Israelite prophet Isaiah's book of the Bible describes how God selected Cyrus. However, Cyrus was an adherent of Zoroastrianism which may not be all that surprising if you consider that the ancient Iranians who migrated into the lands of Persia may have been practising Zoroastrianism if we are to believe that these peoples were closely associated with the Medes All interesting theories based on evidence but what do you think? Be sure to let us know Often there is confusion about the identity of Zoroastrianism as a religion. A Zoroastrian priest is called a magus, the plural of which is magi. Cyrus the Great's Achaemenid Empire had its Zoroastrian magi, as you would expect. The Iranian-American author Reza Aslan wrote in one of his books, that the magi under cyrus the great were responsible for stating that zoroastrianism is a dualistic faith so now we really need to try to get this straight i've seen zoroastrianism described as monotheistic dualistic and polytheistic zoroastrianism claims that there is one god and his name is ahura Mazda. however it was claimed by Cyrus' Zoroastrianism Magi that there was a good god, Ahura Mazda, and a bad god, Angra Mainyu. And this is not unlike the concept of God and the Devil. This is the dualistic concept of a monotheistic religion. Interestingly, Zoroastrianism claims that all humans will ultimately face a day of judgement where their good deeds will be weighed against their bad deeds to determine their spirit's ultimate fate. This concept may have migrated into Abrahamic religions into what many recognise today as heaven and hell. The confusion which leads to some claiming the Zoroastrianism is a polytheistic faith stems from the concept of their god Ahura Mazda having multiple spiritual essences representing aspects of Ahura Mazda's being. However, rather than being specific deities, which would suggest polytheism, they are purely characteristics of the one god, Ahura Mazda, which confirms monotheism. One source of information which talks of the belief systems of Cyrus the Great's Achaemenid Empire is the histories written by the Greek historian Herodotus, who is somebody we have mentioned a number of times during the episodes of this podcast series. He tells the story of the Achaemenid practice of sky burial, which is when the dead human body is placed on high ground where the flesh will be eaten by wildlife, particularly raptors. This links to the Zoroastrian tradition which suggests that cremation of the human body poisons the purity of the fire. Zoroastrianism promotes the purity of the elements such as fire, but it is not a religion which worships fire, as has been misconceived by some. Despite this very well known link between Cyrus the Great and Zoroastrianism, it is also interesting to note that the Magi of the Achaemenid Empire did not get on with Cyrus the Great. In the days of the Median Empire, the Magi had enjoyed more influence in their society rather than after the emergence of the Achaemenid Empire. This meant that the Magi somewhat resented Cyrus the Great and even went to great lengths to try and prop up a usurper to his throne. If you think back to episode 1 where we discussed how Cyrus the Great's son and successor Cambyses II spent a lot of his reign trying to consolidate the Egyptian realm of the Achaemenid Empire, it was during this period that the Magi were at their most threatening. Ultimately, it would take another great king, Darius I, to restore some sort of stability and normality to the Achaemenid Empire. The Achaemenid Period It can be difficult to categorically state a lot of the thoughts and feelings of the people of Persia before it was conquered by Alexander the Great in the 4th century. We have to read the writings of Greek authors such as Strabo with caution due to the fact that we may get a slanted misconception of what was going on as opposed to a first-hand account. We can almost blame Alexander the Great for the lack of first-hand accounts as may have been kept in the great library of Persepolis, which was destroyed by the Macedonians. One particular artefact of great interest in relation to this period is something called the Behistotun inscription. The Behistotun inscription is a relief that has been carved into a rock face at Mount Behistotun, hence the name. Mount Behistotun, is located in the Zagros mountain range, which we have mentioned on many occasions, and which can be found east of Mesopotamia. The significance of the Behistotan inscription cannot be understated. It represents a link between cuneiform and other writing styles that has enabled us to understand cuneiform in the same way that the Rosetta stone has enabled us to understand Egyptian hieroglyphs. The Beisatan inscription tells the story of Darius the Great's victory over the rebellious satraps of Achaemenid Persia and the fact that this was achieved with and thanks to the blessing of Ahura Mazda, therefore validating Darius' rule as willed by the Achaemenid god and should therefore be regarded as legitimate in the eyes of true Zoroastrianism followers. If nothing else, this was an expert piece of propaganda created by Darius the Great to unify the Achaemenid Persians and devalue the religiousness of the rebellious Zoroastrian magi seeking to reclaim the empire. When the Macedonians under Alexander the Great were looking to conquer the lands of the Achaemenids in the 4th century they would attempt to strike at the Zoroastrian heart of the Achaemenids. So not only did they destroy the great library of Persepolis, but they would also destroy Zoroastrian temples in the process. After the conquests of Alexander the Great and the subsequent emergence of the Seleucid Empire, we recognise that Zoroastrianism was still practised in Seleucid Persia, but it was in isolated communities. Strabo writes that Zoroastrians would have eternal fires burning to symbolise their belief that fire represented a pure element created by the Zoroastrian god, Ahura Mazda. So once again, we stress that Zoroastrians were not worshipping the fire, but honouring fire as a pure creation of Ahura Mazda, who they were actually worshipping. Seleucid and Parthian period With the emergence of the Seleucid Empire, which rose out of the Macedonian conquest of Achaemenid Persia, it should be no surprise that Greek religious practices migrated into Persian lands as well. We should also be careful to recognise that Zoroastrianism was not a state religion of Achaemenid Persia. As we mentioned, Judaism and Samaritanism existed in the west of the empire. Babylonianism was a modernization of those Mesopotamian polytheistic practices of the Sumerians and their successors discussed throughout Volume 2. The Macedonians would have recognized the gods of the Greek pantheon, which at the time were the gods of Mount Olympus, who we will concentrate more time on later in this volume. Therefore, this brand of religion is referred to as Olympianism, and Olympianism would migrate into the lands of the former Achaemenid Empire. The vastness of the Persian empires and the fact that it was the home of many historical states and nations would make it almost impossible to impose a state religion for a similar reason that Artanism did not succeed in Egypt. People were extremely reluctant to change the ingrained beliefs of themselves, their families and their societies. In the Persian heartlands, archaeology suggests that the indigenous practices of the pre Seleucids remained largely unaffected by the overthrow of the Achaemenids. Now, as we have already explored in previous episodes, the Seleucids were displaced by the invading Parthians who approached the empire from within the northeastern region of the empire. Those people who invaded Parthia in the first place, the Parni, have no religious identity due to a lack of evidence. So we can only really talk about influence on Persian religion based on the evidence that we find from after the switch of power from the Seleucids to the Parthians. The Parthian Empire was ruled by monarchs of the Arsacid dynasty and the Arsacids appeared to follow Zoroastrianism. Although we have a disappointing amount of evidence to demonstrate this. The presence of temple fires in the Parthian Empire seems to support the association between fire and Zoroastrianism. The Zoroastrian practice of sky burial, mentioned earlier in the podcast, is to protect natural elements such as earth and fire being poisoned by the human corpse. Ground burials are forbidden to prevent the human corpse from poisoning the earth and cremation was forbidden to prevent the human corpse from poisoning the fire. Arsacid kings were embalmed and placed in a mausoleum which appears to conform to the Zoroastrian tradition of preventing the human corpse from poisoning the natural elements. Armenia was a country very closely linked to the Parthian Empire due to the fact that the ruling dynasty of Armenia became Arsacid just like the Parthians. Under the Arsacids Armenia would become Christianized at the start of the 4th century but it converted from Zoroastrianism which also points towards a deeply ingrained link between the Arsacids and Zoroastrianism even though we can trace Zoroastrianism back further in Armenian history than the Arsacid dynasty of that territory. So we can have a degree of confidence in the unbroken dominance of Zoroastrianism in Persia for these reasons. <laughs> Mithraism Mithra could be described as a divine Zoroastrian representative of truth and justice which has often been depicted as a deity in Persian Reliefs and Script even though we know that Zoroastrianism is not polytheistic. Therefore, it would not strictly be correct to refer to Mithra as a deity. However, it does appear that members of the main rivals of the Parthians The Romans appear to have adopted the worship of Mithra. These Roman worshippers of Mithra liked to personify Mithra in their own reliefs that depicted him slaying a bull in what is suggested to represent a sacrificial act of dominance over a creature of great strength and fertility. Mithraism spread throughout the Roman Empire, but not as a major religion. It was much more of a secret society that was not opposed by the imperial elite as it was supportive of them and therefore posed no threat. It was more of a rival to other fledgling religious practices that existed within the Roman Empire such as Christianity. We know of the geographical reaches of Mithraism due to the discovery of Mithras temples Throughout the Roman Empire, we have no reason to believe that Mithraism ever gained traction in the Parthian Empire where Zoroastrianism remained dominant. Sasanian period. The Parthians were displaced by the Sasanians, and this is where we can see a concerted effort to impose. Zoroastrianism as a state religion of Persia. The Zoroastrian priesthood were an elite class of their own and became incredibly powerful. The Sasanians made a deliberate effort to promote the religion of the historical Persian people. Their predecessors the Parthians were comparatively foreign to the Persians with their Parthian origins and the Seleucids even more so with their Macedonian roots. The last true Persian rulers were the Achaemenids, the original Persians, and the first widespread observers of Zoroastrianism. Even though Zoroastrianism survived throughout the entire history of ancient Persia and its various ruling dynasties, it has been altered by local impurities and foreign influences, and the Sasanians sought to standardise it once again. Despite Sasanian efforts to impose a state religion on their empire there were still other religious followings within the empire. This shouldn't be that surprising to us as we can see multiple religious beliefs in many societies right up until the societies of today's world. The prophet called Mani was born in Tesiphon which was part of the Babylonian area of the Iranian Empire, and he was born there in the year 216, so it was still under the rule of the Parthians. Mani would become a figurehead for the religion of Manichaeism, with depictions of his crucifixion directly rivalling the story of Jesus' crucifixion. This would be relevant due to the fact that Manichaeism would become influential in the Aramaic-speaking regions, of the Sassanid Empire where Christianity was becoming more and more important due to the presence of the Romans in the Levantine lands. We are also aware of a migration of people described as Nestorianists from the Roman Empire to the Sassanian Empire during the 5th century. Nestorianism is a branch off of Christianity created by the Archbishop of Constantinople named Nestorius. So here we can see that despite the continuous conflict between Roman empires and Persian empires in their various forms, that there were religious exchanges between the two entities. Despite this unsurprising and typical presence of different religious practices within Sassanid Persia, there was a definite effort by Sassanian rulers to destroy impure and other practices within their empire. The Arab conquest of Persia in the 7th century is historically seen as a pivotal event in the religious identity of the region. The Sasanian Empire had been severely weakened following conflict with its Roman neighbours in the form of the Byzantine Empire and it was now susceptible to the expanding influence of the Arabs. However, the Arab conquest of Persia can often be described as the Muslim conquest of Persia but it is important to state that this was much more of a political conquest than a religious one. The new Arab rulers would have no choice but to respect the sheer numbers of Zoroastrian Persians who lived in their conquered lands. Islamisation of Persia would be a gradual process that took place over many generations. It is fair to say that some Zoroastrian communities migrated away from the Persian lands to preserve their religious identity. Some Zoroastrians did choose to stay in Iranian lands where they survived the pressures to convert to Islam. They still live in Iran today, but in small numbers only totaling tens of thousands. During the 10th century, a migration of Zoroastrian people landed on the coast of India, to escape persecution within the Iranian lands. These people are referred to ethnically as the Parsi, which is a name that etymologically links them to ancient Persia. Zoroastrian communities still exist in the lands of India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, and Afghanistan today, thanks to these migrations. We also find that Zoroastrianism has spread to other parts of the world including Australia and North America but even though we have this wide range of dispersal the numbers are comparatively small with an estimated total of less than a quarter of a million Zoroastrians in today's world compared to 1.8 billion Muslims. This has led to Zoroastrianism being described as the most under threat major world religion with some suggesting that it is close to complete extinction. Therefore, there has to be a degree of irony to the Zoroastrianism tradition of keeping fires burning, now representing the struggle of today's Zoroastrians keeping their religion alive. And that's where we're going to leave ancient Persia now. But rest assured, the Persians are going to play big parts in the story going forward as we go back in time to pick up the story next week of ancient Greece. So we're really going to go back to the end of the Mycenaeans, to the late Bronze Age collapse and what happened next. So eventually we're going to hear from those Persians once again as they're going to play a pivotal role in Greek politics. So thank you for listening to this week's episode. Sometimes it's a bit of a risk doing one on religion. It's not everyone's cup of tea. But then also there are some people that are absolutely fascinated by this subject at the same time. And it also gives us a bit of a perspective on the people that were living in those lands and the kind of things that were important to them. And also some of the motivations that led them to doing the things that they did. So I think these religious episodes are quite important for that reason. However, we have now wrapped up the Persians and I'm sure you'll agree it's an absolutely fascinating millennium of human history, the transition from one empire to another and this underlying identity and underlying religious practice of the region. It's uh, quite incredible really and um, I'm sure you'll agree that it's going to be quite important that we know about this region in order to understand its neighbouring region. So I think it was a good idea to do the Persian episodes first. Now we always let you know each week how you can support the podcast. You can go to the History of the World podcast website at historyoftheworldpodcast.com Click on the Patreon link and become a patron of the podcast. You can donate as little as one dollar a month and i'll tell you something those people who have been kind enough to donate a dollar a month have also been able to contribute towards the funds for buying books towards the series and the books are very important if i can buy more books i have more resources and more references And the books that I buy are also included in the bibliography, which is also displayed on the website. So if you click on the bibliography link, you'll be able to see which books I have used in order to refer to uh, for information for the podcast. Also, obviously, I'm using web links. So sometimes where I've got a gap, I will uh, go to uh, various web links. And the best web links I've uh, put into the links section of the website so the links and the bibliography pretty much give you most of the reference points for which i gather material for the podcast so if you're interested in learning more go and visit those links if you want to contribute towards the podcast it will be gratefully received and if you can't make any financial contribution that's absolutely fine just rate and review the podcast wherever you listen to us I'm going to give a special thank you to Nick Barksdale of the YouTube channel, The Study of Antiquity in the Middle Ages. He has very kindly made another video based on the History of the World podcast episode on the Olmec culture of Mesoamerica. So if you're interested in looking at some uh, imagery that relates to that, then you can click on the Interact section of the History of the World podcast.com website and go to the YouTube channel where you can subscribe to the History of the World podcast YouTube channel and access the playlist there. There's about 12 videos in there, um, all of which have been produced by Nick Barksdale, so special thanks to him. Also thanks again to Ryan Stitt of the History of Ancient Greeks podcast, and uh, I'm going to be treading on ryan's toes soon as we go into ancient greece next week so i'm hoping that i don't let the ancient greece fans down by dumbing down too much in the quality of the podcast but obviously we'll always be referencing ryan's fantastic work if you want to learn more about ancient greece i urge you to check out his podcast the history of ancient greece podcast I'm going to leave it now for this week. Um, I will leave the Apple podcast reviews until next week. They normally come through about this time each month. Um, the History of the World podcast community has been very quiet this week. I wonder if it's uh, Christmas and New Year and making you all feel a bit lethargic. And uh, I need to see your energy. Send me a message. Uh, get involved in the interactive sections of the podcast forums, the Facebook page, Twitter, Tumblr uh, the um, Tapper Talk um, discussion forum come and get involved, come and excite some debate and discussion about the history of the world until next week when we pick up the story of ancient Greece for the first time have a wonderful week everyone and we'll see you again soon Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.